0: Rarely is a woman wicked, but when she is, she surpasses the man."
1: In this podcast, I discuss graphic portrayals of violence and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast also contains spoilers. Hello, my name is Gracie Bain, and welcome to Ripperture, Building the Myth, a podcast where I explore the intersections between gender, genre, and literature about Jack the Ripper, also called Ripperture. Join me on a journey through just a few of the texts that adapt crimes that, quote, startled the civilized world and puzzled police, philosophers, reporters, physicians, students of human nature, and analysts, end quote. We'll try to answer the questions. Why do we keep fictionalizing these gruesome crimes? Why are we still obsessed with these crimes? And what does that obsession tell us about ourselves Ripperture is a result of history becoming myth through the adaptation process. Because Ripperture is based on a historical crime and myth, it invites the reader to deduce clues based on prior knowledge in popular culture. Throughout this podcast, I contend that the myth of Jack the Ripper, as it has been constructed across forums and media for over a century, has created spaces for the simultaneous process of reinforcing and crossing gender and genre boundaries. As I start every episode, I name the five canonical victims of the Whitechapel murderer. Mary Ann Nichols, born in 1845, Annie Chapman, born in 1841, Elizabeth Stride, born in 1843, Catherine Eddowes, born in 1842, and Mary Jane Kelly, who was born sometime around 1863. Though there were similar crimes and murders that are sometimes associated with the Whitechapel serial killers, like the murders of Martha Tabram and Emma Elizabeth Smith. The mythology of Jack the Ripper mostly includes just these five victims. I believe foregrounding the women at the start and throughout my episodes is a critical part of my work as a scholar of gender and really just as a human being. For more information on Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes, Kelly, and other information about the Whitechapel murders, check out the show notes and my website resources. As a note, throughout the episodes, you'll hear this dinging noise. Whenever I'm signaling a quote from an academic scholar, I know, I know, but you get used to it. Welcome to my series on Jill the Ripper. I know what you're thinking. Did she just say Jill? Yes. Yes, I did. A theory in 1888 still espoused by some, argues that a woman killed the canonical five victims out of revenge, desperation, greed, or something else. This version of the Whitechapel murder is often called Jill the Ripper. Jill has been a fruitful site for fictionalization for many reasons, like our belief that women don't commit that kind of murder, our obsession when women do commit that kind of murder, and what a female ripper would mean for the mythology. While the other texts in this podcast include women, they are typically in the victim or detective role. For this podcast chapter, I'll cover texts portraying a woman murdering the five canonical ripper victims. I argue this subgenre of ripperture both reinforces and complicates Victorian gender ideology and even contemporary gender ideology. Specifically in this episode, I'll discuss some of the characteristics of this subgenre and how one text written a year after the murders fits into those definitions. While various female figures are considered villains in other texts covered in this project, I devote this chapter to the Jill the Ripper theory. What does altering or adapting the Jack the Ripper script mean? Helen Davies poses a question that I think is useful for our discussion of this figure. She writes, quote, I argue that it is this tension between repetition and transformation that is so relevant. Performativity is the process of historical repetition. Even the most subversive of performances, whether in the form of gender or neo-Victorianism, is necessarily dependent on the prior script on which it attempts to alter. This raises a crucial question, how can we tell if a recitation is enacting its aversion of the prior script, or if it is mere repetition, end quote? The idea Davy poses in that quote, the difference between reinforcing or questioning a problematic narrative by altering it, is important for this chapter. Because on the one hand, you could say that the Jill figure could give Victorian or neo-Victorian women more control over a narrative that intentionally removes power from them. On the other hand, Jill is still a violent murderer. Ruperture attempts to toe the line between subversion and reinforcement of problematic gender narratives. Multiple theorists, such as William Stewart and Jack the Ripper, A New Theory, from 1939, have proposed that a woman called Jill the Ripper committed the murders. Stewart argues Inspector Aberleen, one of the lead investigators on the case, apparently posited that it was a woman. A witness called Caroline Maxwell testified that she saw Mary Kelly after Kelly was thought to be murdered. Stewart proposes that Maxwell saw the murderer dressed in Kelly's clothes. In addition to Inspector Aberleen, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes books, thought the killer might be a woman. To add even more to the theory, DNA from the stamps on some of the letters sent by the supposed killer came back as being from a woman. According to the internet, the place most people find their information about Jack the Ripper, Just as a reminder, here's the quote I opened the episode with.
0: Rarely is a woman wicked, but when she is, she surpasses the man.
1: This quote about the wickedness of women comes from Italian phrenologists Cesare Lombrosos and William Ferreros' The Female Offender, written in 1895, just a few years after Mary Jane Kelly's death. The quote, supposedly an Italian proverb, comments on the rare but vicious female criminal, This idea that a female murderer is rare but can be fierce frames Jill the Ripper. Again, my goal in this podcast is not to try and solve the murders or make an argument for who the murderer was. But I do want to briefly mention some of the major justifications for the Jill the Ripper theory because we see them play out in the actual fiction. Stewart argues that a woman, likely a midwife, could travel at night without being questioned, could move through the streets with bloody clothing, had the anatomical knowledge to perform the mutilations, and could have had an alibi if caught next to a dead body. Stewart argues, quote, Not Jack, but Jill the Ripper can be the only satisfactory answer to the mystery. End quote. For the next few minutes, let's talk about a historical Jill the Ripper suspect, Mary Piercy. When I type Mary Piercy into the internet, the second website, On the results page is an all-that's-interesting article called Meet Mary Piercy, the 19th-century murderess who may have actually been Jack the Ripper. Also on the results page, in the People Also Search For section, is John Pizer, a suspect in the Whitechapel murders, along with the phrase, Jack the Ripper. So, to be fair, I'm sure the algorithm is just catering to me and giving me what I want because, surprise, I Google Jack the Ripper a lot. However, the pervasiveness of the connection between Piercy and Jack the Ripper on the internet at least shows you that people are talking about Piercy's relationship to the Whitechapel murders in 2021 when that article was published. Mary Piercy was arrested and convicted for killing a woman, Phoebe Hogg, and her 18 month old child in 1890, presumably because Piercy was in a relationship with Phoebe Hogg's husband, or as The Times says,
2: It appeared that the prisoner had been on terms of the greatest intimacy with the husband of the deceased.
1: Phoebe Hogg's murder was brutal and violent. Her skull was crushed and her throat was cut. Her body was found on the street and her daughter was found separately. The cause of death for the baby was attributed to smothering. Piercy was convicted and sentenced to hang. According to Hargrave Adam, the author of Such Treasures as the Indian Criminal and Oriental Crime, in Police Work from Within with some reflections upon women, the law, and lawyers, published in 1913,
2: From the way in which the body was mutilated, it was at first thought to be another ripper murder. And the discovery caused a good deal of sensation in London.
1: For my research, Mary Piercy isn't considered a serious suspect in the Whitechapel murders, but she does exemplify some of the fictional narratives of a Jill the Ripper. And discourse around appropriate and inappropriate female sexuality that you can see in the newspaper excerpts is obviously a part of that discourse. Piercy's motives fascinated speculators, just like we are now fascinated with a "why" question of crime. In another article from the Times, the author theorizes her motivations.
2: The motive seems to have been jealousy, but not jealousy of any very simple kind. Mrs. Percy, as she was commonly called, has been for years a woman of immoral life. She lived for a long time with the man whose name she bore, and afterwards... When living alone in the room where the murder was committed, she was chiefly supported by the gifts of a gentleman. But for more than two years, perhaps for four years, her affections were concentrated upon Frank Hogg.
1: Notice the newspaper focuses on her sexual relationships, calling her a woman of a moral life and maintained by the gifts of a gentleman. Her sexual escapades are integral to the reporting and how the Victorian public understood her. We will see this link between female criminals and their sexual behaviors occur throughout our discussion. To understand the public's view of Mary Piercy and other female murders, we need to understand the historical context and how that carries through to our contemporary moment. We will talk about gender briefly here, and then go more into detail later in the episode. The late 19th and early 20th centuries, like literally all times before and after, was a time of social and cultural change. One of those social movements was first-wave feminism, and the symbol of that movement was what was called the New Woman. The New Woman was a figure that questioned existing ideological rules and sought to complicate them by encouraging women to be more educated, have jobs, etc., the new woman was often used as a boogeyman figure. The question of spheres and appropriate femininity in the 19th century can still be common topics of discourse. Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of the UK, literally used Victorian domestic rhetoric as a part of her platform in the 1980s. On a more personal note, my childhood sunday school teacher had an entire bible study series devoted to a straw man version of the 21st century new woman the dreaded feminist some 19th century critics connected the women's rights movements to female criminality hargrave adam makes that connection
0: but i repeat do not destroy the pleasing illusions for it is in our idealistic imaginings that we seek refuge from the cold unsympathetic and discouraging region of facts we know we men only too well and bitterly that really good women are becoming scarcer and scarcer every day as they become emancipated slowly but surely through the demoralizing influence of commerce women are becoming a hybrid race neither fish flesh foul nor good red herring where do you think a woman looks noblest? at the head of her household, tending her offspring, or perched on an office stool buying a pen. Alas, we also know that women are more and more shirking their natural functions of motherhood, more and more are striving to oust men from their legitimate spheres of activity, for which they are themselves extremely ill-adapted. Thus, they swell the ranks of the unemployed and indirectly those of the criminal community. What is their ultimate ambition? Have they ever asked themselves, Do they wish to usurp the privileges of the male sex while they retain those of their own? Do these rebellious daughters of Eve hold man blameworthy for the accident of their sex, or nature, or their maker? Do they wish to emancipate themselves out of their natural position in the scheme of life? What is their real grievance? And against whom do they conceive it?
1: I haven't found much biographical information on him, But from his comments here, we can see that Adam is very concerned with the state of women, particularly those who break established traditional social conventions. Discussions of women's mobility, the private and the public, and the questioning of existing morals influenced how a female killer like Mary Piercy was read and characterized by society. I'll break the fourth wall here. Women that kill in Victorian fiction was my original dissertation idea women like the sensation heroines slash villains of Victorian sensation fiction, like Lady Audley, my personal favorite, in Mary Elizabeth Braddon's 1862 novel Lady Audley's Secret, or Lydia Gwiltz in Wilkie Collins's 1864 novel Armdale. Many of these characters' murders, though, could arguably be described as justifiably motivated, although still immoral, In Double Jeopardy, Women Who Kill in Victorian Fiction, Victorian scholar Virginia Morris describes their motivation as, quote, only of killing specific individuals directly tied to their personal or social oppression. They implied, if they did not always explicitly state, that the individual cases were part of a larger, legitimate gender battle, a power struggle between men and women, rather than... Simply individual examples of depravity or immorality, end quote. Instead of just being a woman who kills because she wants to, she kills because she has to, or culture has forced her to murder to maintain her position within that culture. Morris also writes, quote, There is an incremental movement toward seeing violent women as justified agents of change. However, brief their success in altering the inequitable balance of power which oppresses them, end quote. Arguably, even giving some sort of social justification for Victorian women killing could be considered subversive. It could point to the incredible and unfair lengths it takes to maintain the veneer of the proper woman. However, I would argue that, in our case, Jill very rarely kills to maintain this image. Were at least in the text I examine. We've always been obsessed with female killers. We've talked about Victorian female murderers, and I want to draw our attention to the similarities in how we talk about female killers today. Think about how newspapers reported Jodi Arias. Jodi Arias was convicted of killing her on-and-off-again boyfriend, Travis Alexander, in 2008. Most media coverage about the murder and the trial itself focused on the sexual relationship between Arias and Alexander and Arias' obsessive behavior. Reporters, and really everyone, focused mostly on her seductive sexuality and the contradiction of that and the couple's Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, or LDS, faith. Many of Travis Alexander's friends were interviewed and told stories of Jody Arias breaking in and listening to conversations between Alexander and his friends. A blurb on Amazon, in a book about the case, describes their relationship, and they use the word Mormon, which is not used by the LDS Church, as extremely sexually volatile.
2: Soon, graphic stories about the Mormon couple's relationship and their lurid sexual encounters emerged launching a trial filled with sex and deception, and raising substantial questions about Arius's deceit-filled world.
1: The idea that the people involved were religious but still sexually active, against the church's rules, got the public's attention. People presented Arias as a femme fatale, a liar and sexual obsessive, something that also caught the media's and society's attention. Was that Arias had taken pictures both right before and after Alexander was murdered? He was in the shower, and those pictures were widely published. The blurb for a biopic called Jodi Arias, Dirty Little Secret.
2: A seductive, aspiring photographer.
1: We can see similar language used to describe Arias as we can Piercy. Their sexual behaviors are the focus of the conversation. And if not a cause for their criminal actions, they are at least connected. I've spent a lot of time on Mary Piercy, but I think she is a model of how the Victorians, and we, talk about female murders. And though we don't have an actual Jill Ripper figure to compare her to, the way Victorians were fascinated with Mary Piercy and other female killers mimics how we are fascinated by them today. Victorian gender ideology crept into every existing institution, just as our contemporary gender ideology does. So some of you may have heard of The Angel in the House, the 1862 poem by Coventry Patmore. In this poem, the speaker praises women for being subservient, supportive, and basically for being non-entities. Here's an excerpt from the poem.
0: Man must be pleased, but him to please is woman's pleasure Down the gulf of his condoled necessities She casts her best, she flings herself How often flings for naught and yokes Her heart to an icicle or whim Whose each impatient word provokes Another not from her, but him While she too gentle even to force His penitence by kind replies Waits by, expecting his remorse with pardon in her pitying eyes. And if he once by shame oppressed a comfortable word confers, she leans and weeps upon his breast and seems to think the sin was hers, or any eye to see her charms. At any time she's still his wife, dearly devoted to his arms. She loves with love that cannot tire, and when, ah woe, she loves alone, Through passionate duty, love springs higher as grass grows taller round a stone.
1: Even if you haven't read the poem, it's likely that this imagery has crept its way into your brain. I asked a couple of my friends what they thought of when they imagined Victorian women. I chose to interview these friends because neither of them study anything remotely close to adaptation, crime fiction, or the Victorian period. Here's my colleague's Michelle's response. When I asked her about what she thought of when she thought of Victorian men and women, very prim, proper bustles, long, long
3: dresses. Um, I, I think probably just the prim proper is the most accurate description.
1: And then Dana says something similar.
3: Victorian women. I just somehow I'm focusing on all the clothes because Victorian women. I immediately think of like corseted yep. women go to a ball. Yeah, yeah, with fancy hair and the imagery just keeps coming to my mind and it's probably totally off too like conflated with whatever things i've seen and i'm lumping all together but victorian men i still just picture like the gentleman victorian man like young adult man in his 20-ish you know 20s how like Supporting people with some sort of like slicked hair and fancy pants. But like everyone's just a cutout character from a period drama in my mind.
1: I think it's fair to say that a lot of people think of the corseted woman that only has sex for reproduction when they think of a Victorian woman, regardless of the truthfulness of that, because that's how she's adapted or she's written as trying to break free of those constraints. I will repeat some of these key ideas throughout the next couple of episodes, but since this is the first one in the series, I want to give you some theoretical background. Sometimes, when we think about gender politics in the Victorian period or certain ideologies today, we think of a separation between genders and how specific genders perform certain acts, feelings, etc. This can be called the separate spheres ideology. Feminist critic Lynn Pickett defined separate spheres ideology in this way quote, The development of the middle class home and family in the 19th century involved a new kind of division of labor the moral and reproductive labor of the wife and mother within the private domestic sphere, and the competitive, economic, productive labor of the husband in the public sphere of industry, commerce, and politics. End quote. According to the system, so-called appropriate femininity remains in the house, and proper masculinity can move through politics and other institutional structures outside the home. It served as an organizing belief system, even if there was a difference in practice. As an organizing mythology, gendered expectations permeated through all Victorian institutions. My take is that the Jill Dorper figure complicates that image by being violent. A complicated part of Victorian ideological structure was the idea that women were also capable of violence, if not properly controlled or regulated to the right spaces. Equally present, but perhaps more implicit than The Angel in the House, is an image of women as what Andrew Mangum calls, quote, inherently pathological, end quote. The idea was that underneath the calm exterior, women were explosive if not contained properly, i.e. the hysterical diagnosis, etc. This dual expectation of women to be accommodating yet secretly violent found its way into many of the descriptions of female serial killers in the Victorian period, like Mary Piercy, the Jill figure queers or bends or attempts to the Victorian gender dichotomy. To clarify, I'm using queer as media theorist Pamela Demery uses the word. Adaptation as a form is particularly adapted offering us queer potential because, as Demery explains, quote, to adapt is to modify, to evolve, to transform, to repeat, imitate, parody, make new. To queer something is to make it strange or odd, but also to turn or transform it. To queer, then, may be to adapt. To adapt is to queer. To identify something as an adaptation is to recognize it in relation to something else, something prior, something that for at least some people is more original and more true. Similarly, to identify something as queer is to place it in relation to something that seems to have already been established as normal or straight, end quote. Demery argues that to queer something is to repeat it with a difference, vis-a-vis Linda Hutchin. This is a useful framework for texts with the Jill the Ripper figure that repeats Victorian gender ideology with a difference. Specifically, the texts repeat the traditionally accepted mythology of the Whitechapel murderer with a non-traditional killer. Jill the Ripper can be said to attempt to resist, quote, a source text's conventional narrative structure or normative ideologies, end quote. I say attempts because these texts are not necessarily successful. The Jill the Ripper subgenre of ribaiture is one of the most interesting sites for gender crossing and reinforcing because on the face of it, it asks us to consider what happens when someone doesn't behave how a mythology tells us they will and how the mythology adapts to that. We still concentrate on female sexuality today and how it encourages violence. In all of the texts we will discuss in our Jill the Ripper section, Jill the Ripper character's sexuality is firmly connected to her violence. Now I want to focus on characteristics of Jill the Ripper in fiction by discussing how those traits are either exemplified or complicated in a text from the time period a dime novel published by the fictional A.F. Pinkerton called The Whitechapel Murders, or An American Detective in London, published in 1889. In this story, Ogden Richards, a detective from the U.S., is in London for an unrelated case when he decides to throw his hat in the ring to solve the Whitechapel murders, very casually. His best friend and partner with the problematic name, Jip her joins him, through his investigation, Richards suspects Servas of being Jack the Ripper, after Servas has brief blackouts in which he returns with bloody clothing. Eventually, Richards finds that a beautiful, indigenous Native American woman, Princess Wakanta, has mesmerized Servas into either performing the murders or setting him up as a dupe. She can briefly mesmerize Richards, but he proves just too manly and just too strong for it to last long. The story ends with Richards losing the princess and Sarvas in a crowd after Richards' attempted murder. Jill the Ripper fiction sexualizes and racially eroticizes the murder in a way that Jack the Ripper fiction doesn't. Most of ripperture that includes a Jill the Ripper killer spends a long time talking about the killer's body or looks. Here's how Richards describes Princess Wakanta.
3: Never before had my eyes been dazzled by such regal, barbaric beauty. She entered the room like a queen, a head well-poised on a beautiful throat, and adorned with the glory of green-black hair, brilliant in its ebony texture. The hair fell nearly to her eyebrows, and beneath them flashed a pair of velvety eyes, black as the shadow of a moonless midnight. Her umber face betrayed the East Indian's swarthy complexion, but with her, it was a living bronze, and the face was unworldly in its beauty.
1: Notice the gross emphasis on Princess Wakanda's looks as exotic. Richards finds her beautiful in spite of how he categorizes her, and because of that. Richards questions how she could be indigenous but so beautiful, and she replies, Quote, jest, why should I jest? I glory in my race. The blood of the two most powerful tribes on the American continent flows through my veins. I am Okanta, the daughter of Indian Teopa, the chief of the Sioux." Quote. After she says this to him, Richards thinks to himself,
3: This was said quietly
1: but earnestly,
3: and her eyes skinnily with suppressed energy. Had the words been spoken with any dramatic effect, or voiced with braggadocio, I would perhaps have smiled up my sleeve, and led her on to greater folly, for I am almost entirely devoid of sentiment, even to the extent of cynicism. But the princess looked an offspring of royalty, and so I held my peace, waiting for her to proceed.
1: Richards finds Princess Wakanta interesting because he fetishizes her. In some of the texts I will discuss in this chapter, a woman does the violent killing herself. However, others, including the Whitechapel Murders or an American detective in London, have Jill's violence enacted by a third party. Princess Wakanda may be violent, but she is a, quote, murderess by proxy, end quote, as Ogden Richards describes her. Let's return to the charming sincere Lombroso and William Ferrero. Lombroso and Ferrero say
0: The female born criminal does not always commit her crime herself, often unless she be endowed with masculine strength of muscle, or her intended victim be another woman, or her contemplated crime scene an insidious one, such as poisoning or incendiarism. Her courage fails. Moral shrinkings, there are none. The woman simply has recourse to instigation. For the born criminal is especially to be recognized by the fact that in a joint crime, the part played by her is that of an incubus, to use an expression of Sigeli's. She eggs on her accomplice to the deed with an extraordinary refinement of wickedness.
1: An incubus in folklore is a male demon that sexually assaults a sleeping woman, and the succubus is a female version of this demon. Putting aside whether or not the authors are using the correct gendered word because it's the same thing, Let's think about that kind of description for a second. Ogden explains why Servas would do her bidding.
3: It is well known that mesmerism is animal magnetism. Electrobiology, mesmerism, clairvoyance, and hypnotism designate the peculiar nervous conditions in which the body and mind of an individual are supposed to be influenced by mysterious force emanating from another person. The princess was a mesmerist. Servas had the temperament which made him peculiarly. Sensitive to her mesmeric influence, and when in this state, if he did commit the murders, he was doing her bidding, and she, the instigator, wielding her terrible power.
1: Richards literally uses the word instigated, just as Lombroso and Ferrero, 20 ish years later, uses instigation. Mesmerism by Princess Wakanta also plays up the Victorian fear of the other as having dangerous supernatural powers. Richards and the reader must blame Princess Wakanta for the White Chapel murders because it is unfathomable that someone like Sir Voss could commit them. The neo Victorian examples I'll discuss in later episodes have Jill playing a much more active role in her violence. The conversation around sex, violence, and women in neo Victorian fictionalizations of the White Chapel murders can be accused of what Marie Louise Coco calls neo Victorian sexation. She argues that our fascination with Victorian sex and neo-Victorian fiction is similar to the Victorian fetishization of the other, usually from what they would call the East. Coco writes, put differently, the neo-Victorian novel exoticizes, eroticizes, and seeks to penetrate the tantalizing hidden recesses of the 19th century by staging a retrospective imperialism. 18th and 19th century fantasies of the Orient as a free zone of libidinal energies are now understood as products of the Western imperialist imagination, rather than attempts at literary realism or empirical knowledge. The same applies to the neo-Victorian sexation, which artificially inflates desire only to reveal the impossibility of its sustainability and satisfaction in reality." In other words, as the Victorians saw non-white people as having dirty secrets to fetishize, we see the Victorians as the same kind of warrior. We like to expose the underbelly of the Victorian period, which usually means exposing Victorian women's bodies. You can't see me, but I'm doing the quote fingers for white and expose, because the conversation around race, colonialism, and its existence in contemporary neo-Victorian fiction is much more complicated than what we've just said. I would argue that a part of the Jill the Ripper appeal is that it exposes the idea that some Victorian women may not have been as buttoned up as we like to think of them. As a fictional character, Jill Ripper is fetishized in all of the text, just as her real-life counterparts are fetishized in the media, from the 19th century through the present day. This is similar to the Victorians' fascination with the murdered women as sex workers, and even how we talk about sex work now. It should be noted that neo-Victorian fiction, including Ripper, still does plenty of fetishizing of the racial other. And really, I'm not sure that our sexualization of Victorians is equal to their racism. However, I think what Kolka notes is a valuable mechanism when thinking about neo-Victorian sexuality because it points to our obsession with projecting a Victorian other. If we talk about the violence of the Jill the Ripper figure, we have to talk about the violence enacted on the female victims, or as the Dime novel calls them, quote, degraded women of the lowest type of social outcasts, end quote. The victims are often juxtaposed against the female ripper. A rhetoric of pity surrounded the narrative of the ripper's victims, something akin to the more modern saying of she was asking for it. In addition, contemporary fears of female sexuality and sexual labor played out on the victims' bodies. You can see this in how Richards denigrates potential victims of the Ripper. Here's how he describes the Ripper's potential victims.
3: Undismayed by the two murders of the previous night, wanton women from whom the mysterious slayer selected as victims thronged on all sides, trafficking their miserable, sodded selves for the price of a mug of beer or a fourpenny bed blear eyed and shrill-voiced, they aired their disgusting coquettishness on all sides, mingling their solicitations with ribald joke or screaming out stanzas of some obscene song. Dirty, unkempt, and unsightly, they boldly paraded their fallen condition in the broad streets or followed their anticipated patron up some side corner dark alley.
1: There is a suggestion of trying to lure the killer by posing decoys. But this doesn't trouble Richards, because...
3: True, a woman might be killed, for this man works
1: rapidly. But he would be caught, red handed at that. Interestingly, the he is italicized in that sentence, which can either be a foreshadowing of the gender of the real killer, or an implication that it is more important that the killer be caught than the victim be saved before being murdered. At the beginning of the dime novel, in an introduction... The victims of the Whitechapel murder are described by the narrator, whom we can assume is not Richards because they don't use the same language or first-person pronouns. It's worth noting that Emma Elizabeth Smith is included in the list of the Ripper victims and a woman called Molly Turner. I believe that that was actually a description of Martha Tabram because it describes Turner's body being found in the same area as Tabram with the same amount of wounds. I don't want to get too caught up in the inaccuracies of the detective novel, but I do think it's necessary to note that even during the murders and in almost immediate examples of ruperture, the story was fictionalized, maybe not even intentionally. These descriptions of the women's murders, as well as the general timeline, describes in medical detail what their wounds were. However, the introduction still does a bit of sensationalizing by saying things like, Quote, "the mutilation equaled his preceding exploits but he was more wanton and vicious." Quote. The most graphic description in the central narrative is of a woman's body hanging, dissected in the pantry of Princess Wakanta's home. I'll spare you the very graphic details, but the writer uses the woman's body for a jump scare after Richard's defeats one of the princess's accomplices and realizes the house he is in is on fire and about to kill him, he attempts to save Princess Wakanda's henchmen. Somehow, the female victim's corpse ends up lying across the prostrate man's body with her, quote, half-severed head grinning hideously into his ear, end quote. The focus of the central narrative is not on the victims, however. It really is on the dynamic between Richard, Servos and the princess. Richards does, however, spend time describing White Chappell's general women or potential victims. In contemporary examples of Jill's Ripper fiction, the victims of Jill vary in gender and age. Some of them are the canonical five and some of them are rich men, as we will discuss in our episode on a rape-revenge film called Jill Rips. We'll talk more about this in the following episodes, but the victims' bodies are often sites of fetishism for a neo-Victorian audience during the autopsy scene. Marie Isabel Romero describes it in this way, quote, During the forensic examination of the woman's corpse, the neo-Victorian spectacle of blood and violence is presented as contributing to the visual thirst of a contemporary audience. This is done via extended dissection scenes, in lines with ones we expect to see as a part of police procedurals in series such as CSI, Silent Witness, Bones, or Dexter, quote. Most of the time, though, the victim's bodies are described or portrayed gruesomely in contemporary portrayals. You can see this kind of celebrated violence's beginnings in 1888 and after. Most repertoire climaxes with the male detective defeating uncontrollable female sexuality. This shouldn't come as a surprise, considering the nature of the crimes. But the myth of the Jack the Ripper includes a specific kind of violence. Essentially, it is most frequently tied violence against female sexuality. But in Jill the Ripper fiction, it is the violence of female sexuality. For example, when Princess Wakanta kidnaps Richards in an attempt to kill him, he describes her mesmerism again and sexuality.
3: A faint smile dwelt on her lips. And her head and body were slightly inclined toward me. Her eyes were fastened on mine with an eager, longing expression. And I, poor fool, remained fascinated by the wondrous beauty they displayed.
1: Honestly, a part of me wonders if the princess really has the power to mesmerize, or if this is an example of just more racial fetishization. It could also be both. Thankfully, Richards is not to be distracted for too long. Whether the
3: distraction caused by the noises of the street weakened the hypnotic influence, or whether my mental willpower reacted against it, I do not know. But as the coop hurried over the stones, I gradually overcame the spell by which the princess had charmed me. And before we had driven much of a distance, I was again mentally independent.
1: Good moral masculinity still prevails over racialized femininity, but there is a second where we are invited to think that maybe it won't. And that moment is where the narrative complicates traditional gender boundaries. A part of the fear of Jack the Ripper is his ability to move through alleyways unencountered and unrestrained. This ability has been a part of the iconography and mythology that connects a murderer to the crime scene. Alexandra Warwick notes, Quote, The Whitechapel murders, as well as forming an origin for the construction of the identity of the serial killer, initiate certain ideas about the relationship of subjects to spaces and the existence of the self in the modern urban landscape that continue to underpin contemporary discourses. In contemporary cultural texts, urban serial killers often use the city as a cover for their murderous deeds. The myth is that Jack the Ripper navigated the streets of Whitechapel by using the general hopelessness and debauchery of the East End as a cover. He weaved through alleyways, only to emerge somewhere else. Judith Walkowitz describes his setting of Whitechapel as theater. Quote, for the respectable reading public, Whitechapel provided a stark and sensational backdrop for the Ripper murders. An immoral landscape of light and darkness, another region of illicit sex and crime, both exciting and dangerous. End quote. This image often excludes the many people that lived there that could be considered, quote, respectable. For many, the image of Whitechapel in 1888 is myth like, just like their conception of the Ripper. Ripperture takes full advantage of this myth as historical memory. In Ripperture, the city becomes a stage where we act out our fears of the poor, marginalized, or other. Marie-Louise Kolka and Christian Gudelben argue there is a, quote, monstrous makeover of the metropolis in neo-Victorian fiction, end quote. In neo-Victorian fiction, London becomes seedy and dangerous. This personification, or mythologization, doesn't just occur in neo-Victorian literature is also evident in contemporaneous reperture and newspaper reports. On November 3rd, 1888, one writer described walking into Whitechapel as a descent into the abyss.
2: Dreadful possibilities of life down in the unfathomable depths of the vast warrens. There is an impenetrable gloom after nightfall and impenetrable mystery.
1: Notice the almost sexually violent language in this. The slumber, the social worker, the police have to step down into the unfathomable depths and attempt to penetrate the unpenetrable. Conveniently, for the reader, uh, the riperture reader can penetrate the gloom and mystery as they read through the text. We have been discussing, and will continue to discuss, the mobility or lack of mobility of the Ripper victims. However, a Jill the Ripper figure presents her own kind of spatial implication. If women were limited in where they could go and how they could take up space, what does it mean when a female killer crosses some of those gendered spatial boundaries? If we want to see the Victorian connection between female sexuality and unknowable but dangerous landscape, listen to the description from The Whitechapel Murders or an American Detective in London. Ogden Richards, our narrator, describes how sex workers use Whitechapel as their hunting ground.
3: This road or street is utilized by the poor, shameless creatures known as the Whitechapel women, as hunting ground. They live on either side, in the crooked narrow streets, paying a mere pittance for the rooms, to which they only go to sleep, off the effects of the vile liquor
1: furnished by their transient paramours. The streets are crooked like the shameless women. The murderer is hunting them, but they are also hunters in some sense, looking for work. Sex workers as public women were female grotesques, evocative of the chaos and illicit secrets of the Labyrinthian city. Of course, it is both the expectation and the worst-case scenario that it is men who should reform them in the streets of Whitechapel. Jill's gender constrains her mobility. In the dime novel, Princess Wakanta's mobility is limited because she is a woman, but also because she is an indigenous Native American. While we don't get much of her moving through public spaces, we do get descriptions of her in private spaces. For instance, Richard tells us that she moves and speaks with supreme audacity. He describes her as lounging.
3: The princess had daintily consumed half a dozen cigarettes, lying back with all the abandon of a bohemian.
1: The word abandon is italicized in that sentence, so we know the author really wanted us to pay attention to it. In her own room, the princess takes up space casually and freely. The mobility of the other jails we will discuss in this chapter depends on the text, but because this is a dime novel written in the Victorian period, Princess Wakanda is more limited than her successors. She needs a white man to move freely in public. The princess's dupe is another male detective from the U.S. who can move through Whitechapel and the more respectable parts of London without being questioned as much. However, his character still somewhat challenges gendered expectations of men and women. Here's how the protagonist and our narrator describes Gypser Voss.
3: My associate was a young man, some 28 years of age, with a frank, open face of manly beauty, lit up by a pair of the softest, most tender eyes I'd ever seen in a man's head. They were weirdly brilliant and ovaline in texture. Flashing at times, and then glowing with a soft, subdued light impossible to describe. But, though his eyes were so womanly, jip, or so he was called by his intimates, was every inch a man. Of medium size, well-built, and muscular, he was like tempered steel, cased in satin.
1: I'll be honest. When I first read that description, my 21st century brain suspected that this was actually a love story between the two men, and while that would have been a great read, and there are definitely some queer sexual undertones, I think this kind of description functions more as a way for the author to test the boundaries of gender without straying too far than suggests sexual feelings between the two men. While Servas may serve as some space for gender crossing, his most important role is how others use him. He's a double to Princess Wakanda, but honestly, a terribly uninteresting one. Max Dupere writes, Quote, Neo-Victorian reworkings of the Ripper myth have thus banked on the gothic trope of double personality and the issue of the evil other behind elaborate and conventional civility. Moreover, they have helped the gendered question of the victimized female resurface in all its ambiguity. In most cases, indeed, fear of the monster slasher also implies a hidden fascination for a ritualistic transgression, end quote. Servas loses all sense of himself when Princess Wakanda controls him, as some conjectured happened to the real killer while he was killing. When Richard sees Servas in this shape, he says, It was Jip. But
3: scarcely recognizable. A white,
1: ashy face
3: looked at me from under the damp hair which curled over his eyes. Looked, did I say? He glared at me. The ferocity of a wild beast was in his features, and his eyes, usually so kindly beaming, leveled at me a glance so fierce and brutal that, old fighter as I was, an uncontrollable tremor seized me. His face seamed with tense, sharp lines. And ugly sneer showed the white line of his teeth.
1: When he's with Richards, Servos is a way for Richards to meet the princess and interact with her. He really doesn't do anything besides just needing to be rescued. He's a non-entity or a puppet. Because he's just a puppet, though, the reader can focus their fear on Princess Wakanta. What is interesting about him is how both Princess Wakanda and Ogden Richards use him. In most of the texts I examine, the Jill upper figure has a male detective following her. I say most, because while Dr. Jekyll does attempt to regulate his female counterpart and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, he doesn't necessarily detect anything in the same way as others. I don't want to say too much, because my next chapter will focus on the detective. The point is is that uncontrolled female sexuality or violence is regulated by male surveillance in all repertoire, because it is inherent in the story of the murders themselves. In the dime novel we discussed, Ogden Richards is constantly given access to things civilians don't usually have access to, because remember, he's not an actual part of the police force. Richards and Sir Voss walk into an active crime scene because, quote, it required but the mention of our names, an appearance of our badges, and the constable allowed us to pass. Richards is allowed to visit Sir Voss in jail because, quote, Sir Charles Warren had evidently left a good word for him, for I was given immediate entrance, end quote. Obviously, Richards has more mobility than Princess Wakanta because he is a man and because he is white. Nevertheless, Princess Wakanda needs one of them to do her dirty work. In more contemporary examples of riperture, Jill can move much more freely throughout the city landscape. And we'll talk about those when the time comes. However, Jill is always more limited than her male detective. We went over a lot in this episode. First, we established some of the historical precedences for a Gilda Ripper figure in the Ripper mythology. Then, we talked about some of the common themes and fictional adaptations of a female Whitechapel murderer and how an early text, the 1889 dime novel, The Whitechapel Murders or an American Detective in London, either fits in or doesn't within those constraints. When discussing my dissertation with people, they are most often excited about this chapter, the Gilda the Ripper chapter. And to be completely transparent, this chapter is also often thought of as the most marketable of this project. Gilda Ripper has been continually adapted and added to the traditional narrative. As Benjamin Poor writes, quote, Therein I would suggest lies the fascination with the villains of the Victorian period. Since, in the popular imagination, the Victorian society gave everyone a place. There were more stratifications and classifications to transgress. And because the limitations and expectations of their worlds are so strongly evoked in Victorian novels, the thrill for modern writers of tearing villains free of those limitations becomes greater. End quote. Our fascination with fictionalizing The White trouble Murderer is interesting in and of itself. This chapter examines how gendered portrayals of the killer, Jill the Ripper, engage with Victorian and contemporary ideology. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. Be sure to check out my website, GracieBain.com and follow me on Twitter at Gracie underscore Bain. Many thanks to the University of Arkansas English Department for supporting my podcast dissertation. Thank you especially to my dissertation director, Lisette Lopez-Swicky, and the rest of my committee. Special thanks to Ross, Jeremy, Michael, Dana, and Michelle, and much appreciation to the University of Arkansas Gender Studies Program and the resources I received for this podcast dissertation with support from the Bridge Fellowship. I'll be back later with more conversations about the fictionalization of the white trouble crimes and the gender politics accompanying it.